Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4 Rowing Around Imrama. Episode 14 The Pursuit of the Gila Decker, an unofficial Fenian Imrov, and a lot of fighting. Thinborn describes the Gila Decker. Thinborn to Finn McCovell. Matei dot benefit a in a ear in Kovroid Gnesta. Pongus fain dot reasetta, mar the V urm aigla. Finn McCovell to Finn Bourne. Craid for Fogfus Tolara a in Vaughan and Roshgale. Craid as forth doth hurricate for Lagus deed the Hoveet. Finn Bourne to Finn McCovell. Dual Knroch delve nevlete as mo groin don dring deende. Tiet kasna inetje, a tall le shovel seethrak. Ech motherba, nish gievach in a veed, ken heem deathnesh. Augusta, agarv eren, a tall er hen in ech shin. Dorleg heida, hen lethna, a tall aga, do nimcher. Is lurked ear and ath like the a chladev cruet la curbet. Ach so forth, mothethnishe. Me hyoking, cothronona. Finn born to Finn McCovell. The gods bless you, O Finn, O man of soothing speech. I come in need of your stirring words because I was so frightened. Finn McCovell to Finn Bourne. Why did you leave your watch post, O oh, white Finn, with your bad news? What has you so distracted that you could discard your duty? Finn Bourne to Finn McCovell. A deformed, demonic creature, uglier than the human host, is coming towards the Fianna in an arduous advance. A sullen, skew-wise horse follows him, dragging its feet. A rough-hewn halter of iron holds the head of this horse. Two precious old broad spears he has and carries with him. A javelin of burnished steel and his hard sword for hacking. This is the reason for my speed, or I would have waited till evening. Well, I suppose we ought to start by saying why it is we've chosen to include the Gila Daka in our series on Emerald. Well, as we'll come to see, it certainly shows a knowledge of all the motifs that we have met in our very circuitous route around Emerald. <laughs> yeah, and it's also sort of light-hearted, an interesting way to finish. Yeah. Loads of battles and it's a boasting Fenian feast of fun. Feast of fun, yeah. <laughs> At the opening of the story, Cormac, as he is in a lot of the Fenian tales, is High King, with five provincial kings 
and that Finn is the chief of the royal captains. Yes. And as you would expect for particularly a story where Cormac McGart is looking after everything, it represents a lot of that court, a lot of that justice, the rightness, the balance. Yeah, the text says, in exercise of hospitality, this Cormac was a hospitaller. In poetry, a poet. And in kingliness, a king. What it's getting at is that there is a correct division of labour that all those different spheres that you need for a, a healthy Irish society, you know, the, the hospitality, the poetry and the rule are all uh, equally divided out, but that the king represents the best of all of those. And therefore, if the king is the best, the land, the country will be the best yeah, as well. So it's a stable, peaceful land. Exactly. And in fact, Finn is described as being equal to the provincial king. Yeah. Uh, he's called the seventh king of Ireland. Yeah. So this cord and the prosperity is reflected in the payment that is given to Finn and to their Fianna for protecting the land. Yeah, what they get. In every tour for townland, in every townland a cartron of land, in every house a wolf dog, whelp or beagle pup, from Yeltena to Sauron. Yeah, so that's their wages that they're given, essentially, um, in order to protect the country. Yeah, and this rightness and order is exactly what Fianna and the Fianna are actually protecting. Yeah. So they're keeping Ireland safe from those who would disrupt the process, either from within, like... So your brigands and your cutthroats yeah. and your bandits. Or from outside. Which would be your invaders and your pirates and the like. Part of that role of defence of core would be... Uh, to protect also against the bad judgment of a king, which of course then would disrupt that court and prosperity. So technically, the Fianna would be empowered to depose a bad king. Now, that doesn't happen because Cormac McCart, as we have seen plenty times before, is the absolute exemplar of yeah. a good king. So and they he, don't have to do it, no, but he, they have that power. And he doesn't have his poet at his side, but there the Fianna are standing in much the same role. Yeah. The story begins in Leinster at Alvin at Samhain's, how is it described? Cheerily exhilarating banquets. Yes. <laughs> now, it's a great choice of adjectives. Now, O'Grady isn't always the most precise, let us say, when it comes to, or, we'll the, or the clearest when it comes to translation. But I do like uh, the phrase. It's Eg ol fleather meskavla meatherqueen and the hauna. So, you know, they are drinking, literally, the feast of, of the drunk-making and sweet-meaded Samhain. So. <laughs> well, it kind of sums them up. It is. The Fianna are likely to sort of chop you up to bits in a cheerily drunk and exhilarating manner Absolutely. as well. <laughs> and once again, here we have a story that begins at Samhain, uh, which, like Bialtana, is so often the time when things happen, and particularly adventures that are going to cross over from one world into another. Oh, yeah. You it's going to happen at one of those times. Yeah, isn't it? Now, at this Feast of Samhain, Finn and his Fianna are celebrating the fact that this is the last day of their hunting season and it's not yet the protecting Ireland season. <laughs> so it's kind of their last fling. They can go off, have a big hunt, have adventures and generally be very ir irresponsible. <laughs> you know, when I first read this, I was sure I was reading the whole section mm. wrong. The summer and winter allocations seem to be backwards. You think they do all their protecting in the summer when people are likely to invade yeah. and then take time off in the winter, but it's not, is it? It's not. I think what 
this is reflecting is the idea that over the winter half of the year, um, the Fianna are kind of imposed on the settled farming community. They're mm. housed, they're fed by, if you like, the ordinary population. And so they're kind of more immediate. They're there, they're visible. Mm. Whereas over the summer, they're off out roving the wilderness and, uh, you know, looking after themselves. So they're not necessarily seen by... They're not a burden on the community. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, they're more self-sufficient. Well, I suppose battle is a seasonal sport. Oh, it? yeah. Well, I mean, hunting is to this day, you know, and some in some ways fighting. Well, sport, let's say. <laughs> OK, sport. The, the civilised yeah, yeah, yeah. form of battle. And when you come to hunting, for Fenians, hunting leads them always into a mythical or cultural memory otherworld adventure. It's inevitable. It is. So we get to the hunt. Yes. So, as usual, there's a long, long list of places that they hunt over. Of course. And it really is a long list if you really want to the te- link to the text will be up on the site but just to summarize it includes places that we might recognize like Schlieve Bloom, Schlieve Lucro which is down in Kerry across, uh, the shore. across the shore river exactly and several other of those monster rivers um, it specifically says they go over Thomond and Desmond now Thomond is just Tuath Muin, which is North Munster. Desmond is just Thesh Muin, which is South Munster. They're moving west. Yeah, absolutely. They're going south and then they're going west, you know, right the way over towards Limerick and ultimately Kerry. Yeah, into Nocaini and all yeah, around there. It's exactly. Just, there's so many bits, but mm. they're moving west. Exactly. But why do you think they're charting this progress is so important to the story? Well, for one thing, it is kind of connecting up different parts of the island, you know, and you find this particularly with the Finn stories, that they have a feeling of being national and not local. You know, that while they're often given this base in Leinster, you know, whether it's the Hill of Allen or whether it's Benader, which is Hoth Head, they do end up in the most far-flung places. In Donegal. Exactly, yeah. Some say they're equally, well, they are equally Mm. well-known in Scotland. Exactly, yeah. They are really national. Yeah. Do you think they're travelling through and connecting stories together Mm. as you know, the storylines yeah. of Ireland, as we like to call them. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, we've found this in other stories before. I mean, we found the sort of the, the deep Dinhenicus knowledge in the stories of Mungon, but even in a, in something like Brickrew's Feast, where which, again, crosses the country mm. uh, from one end to the other. And there is something very specific in these kind of stories about linking up, if you like, the furthest edges of our island and drawing them all into the one story, which then obviously connects it to a whole network of others. So, yeah. This seems to be very important to the lit- listeners. Absolutely. To state the location yeah. and its breadth. Exactly. Well, it's equally important for the characters. Yes. Now we have to establish the characters for this story and, of course, their status. Yes, so we've got the dramatis persona yes. of our tale. Yeah. Well, Finn is sitting on his hunting mound at the beginning of the tale. What, you mean sitting on the pile of coats? <laughs> feels like it. I don't know what it is about these hunting mounds. Yeah. I mean, they certainly are places where things happen. Yeah. I mean, just think back to the tale of Rhiannon yes. in the Mabinogion. The yeah. hunting mound is where the adventure begins. Exactly, yeah. At, at times. But anyway, all these warriors are gathered, gathered round and we yeah. get a list of or everybody you've ever heard of. Exactly, really. yes. Yeah. It always generally starts with Oshin, of course, who is Finn's own son. And Oscar, his who, grandson. Exactly. And then you have the one fiery gold McMorna. And uh, of course, Diarmuid. Yes, there yeah, and, uh, and so is Finborn McBrestle, who does have a small part to play in the story. And of course, Conanwell. Yes. You know, the good old Conanwell, the abusive, sharp tongue. Oh, how did you describe it? The man of scurrilous and abusive speech. Yes. <laughs> and a load of 
bit of atlas. Exactly. And now the adventure can begin. Exactly, but not before <laughs> the joys of hunting are described at length and in full. It does go on a bit, doesn't it? It does, rather. <laughs> Finn is there, sitting on his hunting mound and waiting or summoning or challenging mm. or even provoking adventure. <laughs> yes. And he's also got Finn Vaughan McBrashel, who has volunteered to keep watch while everyone else goes off and has a good time. And he's sitting there, weapons in hand, when what should he see coming towards him? Only an ill-favoured, misshapen man, or, as it's described in the Irish, Fovor Ferda Fyrgrona. So, a real alliteration. Yeah, isn't it? So, a really ugly, uh, but manly Fovor, or Fomorian. Right. Yeah. Well, he's described as carrying a shield that on the convex was black and loathly coloured, gloomy. Upon his dingy, grimy left thigh, all distorted, was a wide-grooved and clean-striking sword. Stuck up at his shoulder, he had two long javelins, broad in the head, for which a length of time had not been raised in fight or melee. So they're a bit old. <laughs> and over his armour and harness was thrown a mantle of a limp texture. Well, every limb of him was blacker than a smith's coal quenched in cold ice water. <laughs> <laughs> well, this wonderful sight is bringing with him an equally ugly and cantankerous horse. Yeah, that's got a description as well. A sulky cross-built horse there was, gaunt in the carcass, with a skimpy grey hindquarter shambling upon weedy legs and wearing a rude iron halter. <laughs> this stranger is dragging this horse behind him, but the horse is dragging back. And what with all of this toing and froing, it takes an awfully long time before this stranger and horse actually get up to meet Finn and his warriors. It's quite a sight, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Huge man. Lovely. I love the way the horse is described yes. as big at front, little tiny back legs. Yeah. And, and weedy, weedy, weedy legs. spindly legs, yeah. yeah. It's clear that what we've got here is another one of those disguised other world bucklucks. Yes, I mean, he's already described himself as a favor, you know, as a Fomorian. Um, but we know we've met exactly this type before. After all, this is how Kuroi appeared to Kukulin in the story of Brickroo's Feast. And so we can be pretty sure when you get a description like this that this character is not going to be what he appears to be. Um, after all, you know, we've met so many kind of other world characters who will take on this disguise and then go and challenge or test or, you know, poke a hero into doing something. <laughs> yeah, you and know. you can be sure that, that Finn's going to leap at uh, the challenge. Exactly. I mean, literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... He greets Finn in a sort of friendly enough way, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And um, Finn, of course, then uh, wants to know who he is. uh, And is he of noble or common birth, more importantly? And uh, what this stranger says is perhaps a bit surprising, that he doesn't know himself. (laughs) Is he common? Is he noble? But he does know that he is a favor, and he does know that he's looking for a job. (laughs) And what's more, the word on the street all over the world is that Finn is so generous and kind that basically he won't turn anyone away. (laughs) And what's more, then Finn wants to know what he's called. And this is where he introduces himself as the Gila Decker, which means the hard, the difficult 
awkward servant. And uh, when he's asked why he has that name, he explains that he has never in his life been known to ever do anything for anyone he has ever worked for. <laughs> yeah, and of course Finn also comments on the fact that he hasn't got a servant with yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, here he is dragging this obviously obstinate and very bad-tempered horse and yet he's got no horse boy to help him with this. And what the Gilded Decker explains is that essentially he eats so much himself that he resents any food that a horse boy would have to eat. And so it's just him and his horse. Well, at this point, the Gilladaka specifically asks Conan Whale whether a horseman or a footman, I, I mean a foot, a foot soldier, soldier yeah. will earn more. And when uh, Conan Whale tells him that a horseman gets twice as much, yeah. then he promptly points out that we brought a horse with him, so he has to be regarded as a horseman. Absolutely. So to sum it up, the, the Giller is saying he's mean, mm-hmm. he's indolent, he's uncouth and rude, yes. and he's deliberately challenging to Finn to employ him, yeah. which of course he does. Of course he does. <laughs> you know, this sort of challenge where Gilla Decker is making himself essentially as unemployable as possible, but because he said, oh, of course, generous Finn will employ anyone, it is very much like the challenge that the Fovera make to the Dagda in terms of hospitality, whereby, you know, the Dagda has to take whatever they serve him for food. Back in Moitura. Back in Moitura. And uh, that of course, in order for him to be a good guest, he has to eat it all. So it's a bit like that kind of challenge. It's saying, yeah. okay, if you're so generous, can you Prove employ it. someone like this? Yeah. yeah. How far can I push you? Exactly. In yeah. the same way as the Dugda was ended up having to eat a whole pit, you know, pit of porridge <laughs> yeah, yeah. with sheep and cows thrown into it. And yeah. Then, Go on, try that. Exactly. And, and he has to eat the lot. Exactly. Including so, the gravel at the bottom in case he misses one tiny little speck. <laughs> so here we've got uh, Finn being pushed yeah. to employ someone who was just useless. Exactly, yes. Yeah, And who would be a lot of trouble to. And you're right. Also, there may be another echo in that uh, the Dugda in the Moitura episode mm. is being forced into low work yeah. when he's really a very high status character. Yeah. If you like, a craftsman treated as a grunt. Yeah. Yeah, there may be echoes here. Yeah. But it's also very similar to what we found in that story of the Caherna Quail Rivak, yeah, who of course recently. Yeah, who of course gives one of his names as the Gila Decker. You know, that this is someone who's clearly very talented and has a lot of power and the, all those kind of superhuman feats. And yet what he's doing is very kind of low base, simple, you know, parlour tricks and so on. And the Karanuk was also challenging the hospitality and the employment of everyone that he visited. Yeah, attesting them. Mm. And the fact that it's the same name, yeah. I think, is, is, That's this a link. is the only two times that you find this particular name. I can't think mm. of it coming up anywhere else. No, I don't think so. So there is definitely a link in terms of it's a familiar story type. Exactly, yeah. The stories of the Giladaka. Yeah, yeah. So there may be more lost stories yeah. of him. Well, this deal being done, this contract being made and Finn taking him on as part of his troop, he then tells the Gilladecker that he can turn his horse out with the rest of the Fenian horses. And uh, this he does, but the Gilladecker's horse immediately starts laying into and (laughs) lacerating all the Fenian horses. The description does not mince words, although it does mince horses. (laughs) He said the horse fell to lacerate and to kill promptly. With a bite, he would whip the eye out of one. With a snap, he would snip the ear off a second. And uh, yet another one's leg would he fracture with a kick. Well, well, of course, Colin immediately yells at him, Get that horse out! (laughs) But the Gilladecker says, Well, of course, 
ordinarily, I would get him out no problem at all. And what's more, I would crush his own brains out of his skull myself. But since I've just been taken on uh, by Finn and I'm no horse boy, I can't do it. Sorry, not my job. He's so tricky. I know. And he does point out, oh, Finn, you've done a very bad deal here in employing me, haven't you? <laughs> well, eventually, I mean, Colin just takes over and he manages to get the iron halter on the horse and with his great strength manages just about to hold him back for a while. Mm. So Finn suggests that Colin ride the horse up and down the hills till he drops as being the only way to stop him. Well, in fact, in O'Grady's translation, and I sort of see what he's getting at, what Finn is saying is, to essentially ride the horse to death and that that would be then a retribution or reparation for all of the death that the horse has dealt to their horses. Yeah, and of course it's obvious why he's chosen Conan for this job mm. because, uh, well, for a start he's the biggest and strongest of the yeah. he always he is. I mean, we've met him so many times he's Conan the bold, Conan the greedy, but Conan the brave we yes. found. Yeah. And this time he shows off his skill and he vaults onto the horse's back, digs in his heels and the horse stops. Stop yeah. still like that. You can just imagine the scene, can't you, with yeah. Colin just going over the horse's head and everybody laughing. Yes. I did once do that. It was a very small horse, <laughs> but I did once vault onto a very small pony and then found I was on the ground on the other side. <laughs> well, I hope it was a better looking horse than this one. Well, now, Finn points out that even though Conan is huge and strong and possibly ah. somewhat overweight, <laughs> um, that it's still as nothing compared to the size of the Gila Decker. And uh, so 13 more of the Fianna climb on the horse's back behind Cunon, so it must have quite a long back, um, but that all the horse does is lies down and then it stands up again. But the Gila Decker has a really interesting response to this. He essentially turns to Finn and goes, are you calling me fat? <laughs> You've just put 14 of your men up on a horse that usually only I ride. I hadn't expected such discourteous frivolity yes. from such a legend of a man. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I find this curious because it's sort of, it's the manufactured offence that we've, oh, yeah, met, we've met before. before. In Mongon. Exactly, yeah. And so what it enables the Gila Decker to do is say, right, the contract is void. My year of service with you is now considered over because you've insulted me. Um, but he then said, sings this very mournful, dispirited lay, starting about how, now I shall be parting from Finn. <laughs> you know, maybe we ought to, before we get into the body of the story, mm. as I said, it's just about to take off, literally. <laughs> Um, we ought to just talk a little bit about poetry. Yeah. I mean, so often we find poetry laced through a, a prose story. Oh, yeah. And often it's earlier than the text. Yes, often it is linguistically earlier. I think in this text it's more or less of a piece. Mm -hmm. um, the language seems to be around late middle, early modern Irish. It's not really within my area of linguistic expertise. I'm always very hesitant about dating although the manuscript is an 18th century manuscript. Yeah, but from an oral source. I think very yeah. much so. I mean, there are, there are still some quite archaic spellings, for example, uh, throughout the text. But like I say, I, th I feel like the poetry is not necessarily much older. It's, it's quite comprehensible. It's not so terribly Middle obscure. Irish. Yeah, yeah, middle to early modern, I would say. Um, but what it might represent is how this story would have been performed. Very often the, the content of a poem is sort of repeating what's just been said in the prose, 
but it may be a break for you know either a performance of the poem or even being sung or because often these poems are a conversation between two people exactly yes there's several in this that are you know sort of a couple of so stanzas do you want the short version each. or do you want the long version yeah 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 exactly <laughs> or a deliberate antiquing me- mm. mechanism that, yeah that goes yeah. back to earlier styles of, uh, of, of performance exactly yeah, yeah yeah no it's very interesting mm. but I suppose really we ought to go back to the story yes there is a lot of it to cover so in the wake of this insult uh, the Gilladecker hitches up his coat over his bare buttocks O'Grady translates this as spherical hinder protuberances <laughs> yes and anyway he takes off running with the speed of a swallow or of a roe deer as soon as the uh, Gilladecker makes off the horse decides that it's his turn yeah. and he immediately gallops after his master and it's described like a blast of wind on the mountain carrying Conan and the 13 others away yeah now, I think there's quite a deliberate connection made in this passage between the bearing of the buttocks and the speed of wind <laughs> while departing. Well, I just think that they left a little something behind them. Well, whatever it is, Finn and the Fiona think it's hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and when they hear Colin screeching that they, he can't dismount, they give chase. Well, it's slightly more than that, because what Colin is screeching about is that if Finn doesn't come and rescue them, then there will be an almighty curse. He's basically threatening satire. The curse is a good one. Yeah. May you find a deadly giddiness over water, and may an ignoble enemy, even lower than you, take your head <laughs> if you don't follow and rescue us. Yeah. Do you think it's possible that Finn wouldn't have followed had he not been cursed? I know, I know. It's sort of possibly, oh, come on again. Do we have to go and get yeah, him? Everybody always does. I know, they? yeah. They're actually quite scared of Colin. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even Dermot is scared of uh, his sharp tongue. Well, anyway, the horse with its cargo of 14 Fenians um, races uphill and down dale, always going southwest. And of course, there's another very long list of place names, which you know we won't go into here. But what's important is that they end up right down in Kirkagwina in the Dingle Peninsula, which is right in the southwest in Kerry. Now, this is Kuroi's territory, as we've met mm. before. It's also, though, a launching place for Imrova. So here we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, now the Gilladecker and the horse uh, look as if they're about to plunge into the <laughs> sea. But one of the Fenians, who is known as Leogon Lewis, Leogon the Swift, and he's from Lucra, so he's from that part of the country mm-hmm. anyway, uh, he sort of makes a grab for the horse's tail at the last minute, presumably trying to hold it back from, you know, actually <laughs> plunging into the sea. But then he finds he can't let go. And so he is dragged off with Conan and the other 13, that's 15 in total, <laughs> all dragged off into the sea. And uh, there's Finn left on the shore going, oh, oh God, well, we're supposed to go and well, he's rescue not them now. a man behind his Finn. No, well, not when he's under threat of satire. <laughs> <laughs> but it does say that as the riders, uh, Conan and the rest of the Fenians, are being swept out to sea with the waves all around them, they think they do see a sandy shore ahead of them. And it's always ahead, isn't exactly, it? Exactly, yeah. Uh, the further they go, the sandy bar is always ahead. Yeah. Well, right, so the involuntary Imrov has begun. Yeah. But I love Finn's response <laughs> that those 15 men of his people thus taken from him was a worry. <laughs> um, himself being left under bonds, of course. And then he stands there. He has to go over them, but the scene that's drawn so comic. Yeah. Because you'd imagine him standing on the shore, scratching his head, with Oshin standing behind him going, well, what do we do now? 
well. Yes. And it's Oshin that points out that, well, we actually don't have a boat. Yeah. <laughs> there is a bit of a problem. Yes. Finn has a bit of a sink and he remembers that there's an ancient pact between the Fianna and the two of the Dadanan that any time they needed a boat, that all they had to do was go to Benader, which is Hoth Head, and there would be a ship there waiting for them. But Benether's right across the country. You know, we're talking about getting from the southwest to Dingle to right up sort of almost northeastwards, and that would take quite a while. Bit of a delay. Mm. Yeah, but then, of course, something happens. Yes. And without the hunting of a single deer, the other world converges with the Fianna, yes. as it so often does. Yes, and before they've even made plans of how to get to Hoth, they see coming out of the sea towards them two huge, very elaborately dressed and wonderfully described fighting men. Oh, I'll read the description. The first one wore a ribbed and gaudy coloured shield with forms of lions, leopards and marvellous griffins designed exactly and embossed on it. At his left leg's thigh was a massy, mighty striking sword, steel flashing, very terrible. And at his shoulder, two thick great spears, a scarlet mantle with a fibula of gold surmounting his breast wrapped him. On his head he had a twisted fillet of white bronze and gold underlay either foot. Oh, it's the golden sandals yes, again. Yeah. I did wonder, sort of in passing, with that description of all these devices of lions and leopards and all the rest of it, was this bit of a memory of Lou, who we often find connected with some of the Mananon bling? He has got a sling or a sling staff. He does, but the sling staff, again, Cran Tavel, it could even be a wooden writing tablet. Well, that would suit the carpenter yeah. aspect, uh, which we don't know about yet. Yeah. Remember, look, he's going to be a carpenter. The, I don't know. I just get the feeling that, that we're going to see as they are craftsmen, yeah. that it may be going back to these old, very, very important high status the four craftsmen. Exactly. They may belong, maybe an echo of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, let's look at it further. Yeah. It does describe the second man as being just as good. Yes. Which <laughs> is a bit unfair. <laughs> this pair introduced themselves and there's all the usual settling of status and are they highborn or lowborn. This pair described themselves as sons of the King of India. <laughs> We've met the most holy Christian land of India before and yes. Out mm, there, another country. Exactly. Exotic. Far away. Very, Somewhere exotic. Very exotic. And like nearly everyone else in this story, they have come seeking employment with Finn. Yep, they've got a purpose in mind. Yeah. What the text says is that they've heard that in all Ireland there's not a man who would prove more acute than Finn in judging between the accomplishments which they too possess. Mm. So we've got another setup of two-way testing. Yeah, here's Finn and he's very much on the between point in lots of things. He's just about to leave this world to go to the other world. He's right between the sea and the land yeah. and now he's judging between these two other world figures. Or exotic characters. Yeah, foreigners. And you'd think it'd have worked out by now that there might be a catch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first one is a carpenter mm. and he describes himself very clearly. I have a carpenter's axe and a sling staff or a wooden tablet. Would be wooden writing tablet. And though in one spot I had 30 hundred of Ireland's men, yet with the striking of three strokes of my axe upon the sling stick or writing tablet, I would produce either ship or speedy galley to suffice them. 
while for cooperation I would require none of them other than during delivery of such three strokes they should not look mm. and that's really interesting isn't it second one who tends to get slightly less air time than so the first and the one, other one and it? the other one too yes and oh what does he do oh yes he can track anything equally well on sea and on land so, which is just what the Fianna need right now, of course. They've got their ships, or they can have their ships and follow their friends. Exactly. Before we move on, though, I just thought that the carpenter is particularly interesting yeah. because his special skill or his superpower mm -hmm. is very mitherish, isn't it? It is. You yeah. know, no one must watch him build. Yeah. Just yeah. like Mither wouldn't let anybody watch him build the track at Corley exactly. in the story of Mither and Aideen. Yeah. Uh, and I'm beginning to wonder whether there were actually any prohibitions about watching craftsmen at work. Yeah. We mentioned earlier on, back in Moitura, the mm. four craftsmen, the special status of craftsmen, yeah. how they are really, really important in Absolutely, the law. We've yeah. talked about this a lot. <clears throat> were these stories do they contain a, an echo of a memory of rules protecting craft secrets yeah yeah i've got some memory about similar stories concerning forges where yeah. people are not allowed to see what happens in a forge mm. but i can't track down in my head where they come from yeah and of course in in irish terms you know almost the stonemasons guild bizarrely is named for goifnu you've got all the gubon sair yeah and uh, so on but that is again it's a guild it's got guild secrets mm. and yeah i mean we talk a lot in Moitura about the sort of stealing of technology you mm. know and how the improved technology is so important yeah that's what was that was what was reminding me yeah but there's something even more important that connects to that exactly yeah I, it really jumped out at me there's three strokes i can make it in three strokes all in that section of Moitura where we had governor looked and credna cared making the weapons it was all you know three cuts make the staff and three blows make the spearhead and then three blows to put in the rivets. You know, mm. I often tell a story called The Ship That Sailed on Land mm. and uh, it, it's not from Ireland. Mm. I think it may be even Northern Europe or yeah. Russia even. But um, it's a story, again, where they pick up craftsmen on the way with oh, yes. special powers yeah, yeah. which allowed them to do these things. Yeah. And it's exactly like these craftsmen or these men of special skills. Yeah. I was described as the first superhero story. Yeah, yeah. It's loved by children. Yeah. But it's I'm beginning to wonder whether, in fact, it's a particular stronger folktale type than mm. I thought. Certainly, it's a typical fairy tale duplication going yes, on. Yes, exactly. Time. Having two guys to do essentially one task, you know, where one is so uh, accurately described and the other one is just the same. Mm -hmm. you know so but again it's like well one can make the ship and one can follow so yeah it is does have that folktale feeling to it in fact they end up having more ships than they know what to do with <laughs> um Fionn decides to call the entire Fianna to Love him ship. and they do this by means of Creelcha giving three big shouts and no matter where any member of the Fianna is around the country no matter what they're doing they all hear these shouts and they come running down to the Dingle Peninsula down to Corcoguina to a place called Cluchad Kin Cat, which means the cat's heads stepping stones. And uh, in fact, that usually turns into a place named Clochan, and I yeah. know Clochan, which is very near to Mount Brandon and the Maharese, which would be where St. Brendan set off from. So right. um, <laughs> I mean, this is more fun a departure. Well, once they've got all of them together, there's just too many there. Yeah. So they, in the end, decide that they're only going to take 15 people and one ship yes. to match the number of people who've been stolen. They need to obviously leave someone in charge while they're away. And so they 
they choose Oshin, who is Fionn's son. Oshin is none too pleased about this. He'd much rather be off on a rampage <laughs> with his dad. Um, and so they have this conversation in poetry as they take leave of each other. He's now on departing on adventure! Red weapon and blood-shedding Finn! Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it does end up with Oshin saying that, you know, uh, whatever about Fionn's battle fame, which presumably will reach home again, that it is also proper that Finn will come back. So he's almost making it a certainty that Finn will survive this particular yes, bloodthirsty ex- adventure. But really, he's just jealous because he can't go. Exactly, yeah, that's that's the main gist of it. So we finally reach the journey. Exactly. All 15 of them cram into one ship, which is described beautifully, and they fill the ship as well with all their provisions. They've got all the food they're going to need for a big journey, but they also get as much gold into the boat as they can, in case they need to bribe their way, basically. <laughs> Very sensible. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> then you get this wonderful description of the sea, which I think is worth reading. It is. It's gorgeous. Although I've made slight adjustments to O'Grady's... Um, yes, been translated into English. ...sentence structure. <laughs> and it goes like this. Now rose the sea, turning to become a wondrous and bellowing thing of awe, in fierce, ever-changing, ponderous volume, in restless heights, curving and grim-headed, in murky, impenetrable surfaces, in wide-jawed, white-skinned waves, in frenzied, main-clad hills, in dire currents of many streams. To Finn and his people it was both a lullaby and again an early morning rouse call to hear that broad ocean as against their ship's sides it purred, then loudly boomed, accompanying them on ever. It's quite nice, isn't it? You can can almost feel the waves in it. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's so like... Uh, passages that we've met in other Imrov stories. It's got this great familiarity with these, which are really epics of the sea, I I feel. But it also has all of those very kind of practical, down-to-earth details about how the ships are equipped and how they prepare for their journey. It was one of the best bits that we found in the Voyage of Brendan, was this very detailed description of exactly what the vessels were like, which, again, we felt showed that the authors of these tales did have familiarity with mm. the, with the sea, with shipbuilding, you know, with and that what experience. what do to go out to sea and how dangerous it is. Exactly, yeah. And then this wondrously um, appreciation mm. of of the, the, the massiveness and the strangeness of this other world quality of the sea itself. Exactly, yeah. I mean, it just reminded me of the description in Maldon, though here I think it's slightly more naturalistic. It is, but, you know, we also had quite naturalistic descriptions in several of the Imrov tales, and in Imrov Bran as well, there was a lot about the poetry of the sea itself. Mm, you know, mm, It is another world in itself. Yeah, it really is. Well, in true Imrov style, after setting out on their journey, they travel for three days and three nights, and they can't see a bit of land around them. So after that obligatory three days, they do start to see land in the distance, and it's this great rocky precipice, a very high sheer cliffs that are described as slippery as well. It's like this kind of slippery-sided pillar island. Yeah, we've met that one before. We certainly have. Yeah, and Maldon and I think some of the others yeah. also came to this island of the pillar. Yeah, and it was always that there was no way to get up to the top. And here we've got it again. But they do find a way up because Fergus, Fairlips, uh, taunts Dermot and says to him, well, you know, your education at the hands of Manon and 
Lear and alongside Oingus, the son of the Dagda, can't have been worth much if you can't even get Finn and the rest of the party up on top yeah, of this calling him a wimp. He, he is just totally, going, yeah. you're a wimp. After all that cleverness, you can't do it. Well, this, of course, makes him incredibly angry. Yes, it does. And so he takes up the uh, staffs that have been given to him by Malinan and sort of javelin leaps up the cliff. What, like pole vaulting? Yeah, or like one of the sort of feats of Cahullan. Yes. Me yeah. The trouble is, when he's got to the top himself, he looks down at them and realises that he's got absolutely no way of getting the others up. Yes. Finn and his men are stuck down at the bottom and that's where they're going to stay. Gimmick just has to go off on his own. Yeah. Now, one thing that, that did strike me in reading this passage is that it talks about, this is the only mention of Mananon, which I think we said before when we were just trying to look yeah, for Mananon yeah. in the tales, and that he's mentioned as Dermot's fosterer, his tutor, but also that Dermot was educated alongside Oingus, yeah, son yeah. of the Dagda. Now, we know from other stories who yeah, taught Oingus. not Mananon. It's not Mananon. It's Mither. Yeah. And so, once again, we meet our disappearing Mananon in this story. Yeah, yeah, which goes back to our previous podcast episode. Exactly, yeah. Which we, we can keep coming back to, I think. I think so, yeah. <laughs> well, off goes Dermot over the Great Plain on top of this weird pillar island, and he keeps moving until he finds this great thick forest in front of him. And this forest is full of birds. And as well as the birds and the general forest, there's one great tree, a billa, which is usually translated as sacred tree, something like that. It's a really big one anyway. Important tree. Important tree, exactly. And it's got all these interlaced, interlocking branches and a huge root system underneath it. And at the roots, there's this great rock. And on the rock, there's a drinking horn. And nearby, there's a well of fresh water. And so Dermot, naturally enough, takes up the drinking horn and goes off to get a drink of water from the well. But as he goes for the water, he hears this great rushing noise, a sound of water rushing. Now this is really interesting yeah. actually with this, uh, this is a signal that something's going to happen. Yeah. It appears in a lot of stories. But what I was just thinking about before we get to that bit was yet yeah, once again we've got uh, links to a lot of other Imrola. Mm. Uh, you've got the great plain of, yeah. of birds, although here it's a forest. Yes. But this place of many birds, yes. often brightly coloured birds. And then they're in so many of the Imrama, particularly the Christian ones, you've got the central image of a huge tree mm. covered in birds. Yes. They usually sing praises. Exactly, and yes. Sing hallelujahs and, yeah, yeah. and know all the psalms off by heart. <laughs> But nevertheless, they're still there. Exactly. So this has got a a lot of connections. It it is, it's recognisably an Imrod. It is, certainly, yeah. Now, Dermot interprets that rushing noise as meaning that there's some kind of a, a magical prohibition or some kind of a spell against drinking the water of the well. And sure enough, what should appear but this gruagach coming towards him and telling him not to drink the water. And accusing um, him of trespass. Exactly, yes. It's sort of, get off my land, pretty <laughs> much. And so, Dermot being one of the Fianna, naturally goes and fights with this Gruagach, and they fight all day until the sun goes down, and eventually the Gruagach disappears by diving down the well. And Dermot, who's had a long day of it, goes off, kills a deer, and eats it, and gets himself a good night's sleep. What's this Gruagach? Well, this is a word that, unfortunately, O'Grady has seen fit to translate as wizard, um, which is really not much to the point. Doesn't really carry the weight of it. No, it doesn't. I mean, the literal sense is of someone hairy. What, sort of like a goblin? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it has, sort of from context, they tend to be otherworld uncanny type 
people. They're human-shaped, but they are sort of hairy, uncanny. They are associated with enchantments, and in some senses it can seem to mean someone wise in the way of enchantments. Right, so what we've got is the sort of hairy, wise man of the well. Exactly, yeah. As you might expect, on the following day, uh, the Gruga comes back again to Dermot and says, not only have you trespassed on my land, but now you've stolen one of my deer. And so he's added another complaint to the charge seat. And once again, they fight until the sun goes <laughs> down. <laughs> has no reaction other than, all right, I'll yeah. fight you. Well, that's that's good Fenian <laughs> response, isn't it? So once again, all day, and as soon as the sun goes down, the Gruga disappears by diving down the well. And this time, Dermot kills and cooks and eats a heart. Once again, the third day, as you might expect, goes pretty much the same. But at the last moment, when the Gruguk is about to dive down the well, Dermod grabs him round the neck so that he's pulled down the well with the Gruguk. And where should he find himself on the other side but in a wide, flowered plain and a great, beautiful fortress with a smooth green in front of it. This is really familiar territory. Mm. I mean, but it's not just... Imrov territory. This is folktale territory, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's fairy tale territory. I can think of dozens of stories of heroes who've jumped down and chased a, you know, uh, somebody appears and then they finally catch hold of him. Even right down to the the twelve dancing princesses. Oh yes, yes. Where the soldier tags on behind yeah. and is pulled along through with them. Yeah, and it's nearer again, really. It is. You yeah, know, following in the footsteps. Yeah, it, there are so many stories about mm. entering into the other world like this. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also a double Imrov. He's now entered the other world twice. I mean, once via the island across the sea, mm-hmm. and now he's gone underground. And particularly, yeah. he's gone down a well. I can see the sources of so many folktales. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in Fenian terms, though, it's now a triple Imrov. Because not only has he gone over the sea, not only has he gone through the well, but he's also killed a deer. And in the with the Fianna, if they go off hunting a deer, something strange is liable to happen. Yeah, hunting a deer, as we said uh, earlier on, is yeah. going, to, it's going to take straight into the other world exactly yeah but yeah it, and again that can happen in, in folk tales fairy tales too. oh yeah somebody goes out hunting yeah they find themselves lost in a forest yeah in the arthurian terms that's when weird stuff happens absolutely yeah well once again you know with this image of the well and the prohibitions around the well now we did come across a couple of the christian imrova that there was we are not being allowed to exactly drink the well yes. without permission exactly that happens several times it does yeah but there's also more slightly subtler ones like in Mildoon when they reached the island with the bridge of glass and there was the woman who was coming out every day and she would lift one of the stones in the bridge and she would draw water out and uh, all Mildoon's mates were trying to get her to agree to be Mildoon's wife um, to which she gave some very (laughs) pert retorts but again it's drawing the water that allows this interaction to take place yeah yeah there's a lot more to this Mm. this is a really powerful and long-lasting image it is i was thinking specifically of the lady of the fountain which Mm. is from the mabinogion where uh, it's a really important story you've got this well which is at the foot of a tree this Mm. great tree yeah uh, with birds full of birds and uh, and as he uh, draws the water and blows the horn in other words takes up the challenge mm. suddenly there's a great storm and all the birds leave the tree and the leaves all fall from the tree mm. and what's described as a, a the, the black and hairy man appears oh yeah yeah and so he's there again yeah. and he's the one who who leads owen into a into the adventure yeah yeah so it's almost a parallel yeah, that one that's very close and there's lots of other arthurian stories i mean you know after all just think monty python <laughs> yeah sorry 
<laughs> not with a mouthful of tea, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you shall not pass. Yeah. Oh, I can't fight me then. But in essence, that is funny because people know the idea exactly. of the challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just also struck me, did C.S. Lewis know this story, thinking about the magician's nephew? Oh, yes. Where they jump down puddles. Yes. And also taking up challenges and mm. blowing the horns. I suspect that it's not that C.S. Lewis knew this story. You no, know, he might have done. But it, it's just that it's become such an important motif mm. in folktale. Yeah. It's yeah. really one of the central motifs, it is taking is. up of the challenge. Yeah, Quite a yeah. powerful one. If this was one of our earlier Imbrov tales, you might expect sort of marvels and wonders and uh, tests of the heroes or allegorical tests. You might even find a hairy hermit or two. Oh, hang on, we have found a hairy hermit. Do you realise this Grogok is in fact uh, equivalent to the hairy hermit in the Christian Imrov? Maybe that's even where the hairy hermits popped up from. Maybe they were left over <laughs> this from I- these. <laughs> this idea the hermit clad only in his hair. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just too close. I think it is, yeah. And it, it does have that kind of sense of the wild man as well, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, so yeah, it's quite possible that those Christian hermits who had really lives of virtue. <laughs> but this being a Fenian Imrov, a Fenian adventure, Dermot encounters the Mar marvellous host of the she on this strange other world plane but what does he do he <laughs> fights them every single one of them i'll take you all single-handed which he does all day and he is eventually beaten and covered in wounds and bruises and a bruised ego as well i should imagine he collapses down to have a little bit of a snooze and a recover and at that point a burly warrior approaches him and now the text does say it gives him a kick from behind yeah but you have liberally interpreted <laughs> this to mean he kicks him up the arse um and Dermot, despite all of his wounds and his fatigue leaps up to fight he's, yet again he's offended by this oh yeah <laughs> now i'm guessing that this uh warrior is a man of the she and it's another grogak it, it is indeed yes this is another grogak yeah and this grogak tells Dermot, look i'm just trying to tell you something um i think you've really chosen a bad place to sleep there on the battlefield um i can find you a better place if you let me come on come with me and i'll find you a good place to sleep yeah it's it's just that (laughs) so dermot hauls his carcass to his feet and follows this grogach and they go a very long way away where they find another marvelous fortress and in this fortress there are three fifties of well-armed warrior men and an equal number of the gentle women but it does describe one girl in particular and she's described as white toothed rosy-cheeked delicate handed and black eyebrowed and she's sitting against the castle wall and she's wearing a silken mantle a tunic netted of golden threads and on her head a veil that would be fit for a queen so another great description but when Dermot arrives he's welcomed by name and everything is then properly ordered both in terms of the the space where people are sat according to their status but also in terms of how they use their time yeah it's interesting this the fore part of the night is spent in drinking yes the middle of the night is spent with intelligent conversation yes and the last part of the night is spent with sleep i mean that sounds like a pretty good evening to me it does it it also sounds like some people i know who have that pattern with drunkenness they start (laughs) drinking then they have a conversation then they fall asleep and the food and drink is pretty good as well oh well of course yeah you may just be right maybe that (laughs) doesn't represent order maybe just (laughs) expresses a good night out yeah (laughs) 
But no, it it is still part of this sense of everything being in its right place and of each part of the night being used for its proper allocation. But the status does have to do with sort of both establishing and maintaining nobility. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is aristocratic nobility, however distasteful that might be to us. The balanced life. Yes. So in spite of the constant fighting, um, the sense of rightness is still relevant. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So now it's time for a bit of exposition. Um, Dermot's new friend and host explains to Dermot that the man he had been fighting up on the other side of the well uh, was the king of Land Under Wave. It's tear for thin, so it is literally Land Under Wave. It's not just a poetic expression. What's more, that the host has a long-standing blood feud with him, and that his warrior name is Gruagach and Tibrida. There you are, hairy man of the well. Exactly, yes. But also that the host himself is known as Gruagach Nagashkit. That's a hairy man of the weapons. Exactly. And what's more, that this Gruagach Nagashkit has spent a year in secret service, so to speak, with Finn and the Fianna. I'm beginning to wonder who has not I know, they're all at it, aren't they? <laughs> But also that this year that he had spent was the best of his life. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Then in return for this bit of exposition, he wants to know Dermot's exposition. He wants to know the story of what has happened to Finn and the Fianna and uh, how they've ended up in the situation they're now in. It's the story so far. Previously on the pursuit of the Gila Decker. Okay. Um, it just one or two comments on the story so far. It's clear that being recognised, greeted by name, mm. is an important feature of other world's encounters. I was oh. thinking of Tig and yeah. Badu, and I think is also greeted by name. Exactly. Yes. I, I think it gives that sense that you're in the right place at the right time. This you is your expected. adventure. Yeah. And of course, Bran is called by name. There's also this sense where all this fighting, you know, which is pretty typical for the the Fianna, but that it is part of the establishment of order. It's part of the establishment of, you know, aristocratic nobility. We can't find equality in the modern sense in these stories. Absolutely not. Well, I mean, even that there was a saying in old Irish law that the world was in equality until the coming of the Seanachas Moor, which is the great (laughs) body of law. You know, so there's no kind of fallacy that everyone is equal under the law. That's reflected in the description of how the banquet is seated. Um, because what it says is that no uasal, no high person or noble, was in the place of an ishil, a low person, and that no low person is in the place of a high person. So you're either above the salt or below the salt. Exactly, yeah. I come to think of it, do you remember in Fergus Major mm. how Ulfdorn yes. had this terrible problem when he thought he was going to get put with the ordinary people I and know. shoved out with the rab- rabble? Yes, yeah, exactly. And that was a huge problem to him, not just because of his wife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that importance that your status, your nobility be recognised and that you're you're in the correct place. It's a very central thread that runs through nearly all these stories, whether we like it or not. Exactly. But it's another aspect of court. You know, it's another aspect of, if you like, a sense of natural law. After this, though, it starts to get complicated. What do you mean starts (laughs) to get complicated? (laughs) What happens is that Finn has a sort of parallel experience to Diamond. Yeah. Now, he gets to the top of the Pillar Island, but we're not told how. No. He just, and then he does it. Yeah. And there he also meets a stranger and feasts with him for the usual three, three days and three nights. Yes. But this is a, a completely new and separate, yeah, a parallel story. Yeah. A sort of above-the-ground journey, which is parallel to 
Jim, it's Journey. Yeah, yeah. Except this time, uh, the stranger that Finn meets and has feast with is called the King of Surkha, and Surkha being the bright land, as opposed to people might be familiar with the term Durka, which means darkness. Uh, so this is the King of the Bright Land, and he tells Finn that he also has spent a year secretly in service with Finn, <laughs> just like the Gillan Gashkid had and everybody else. Um, but what this really means is that there's then this sort of reciprocal responsibility between them so that, you know, that this king has given service to Finn and so Finn, even if he didn't realise it at the time, now owes his service to the King of Surika. We're in familiar territory yet again. I mean, folktale territory. Mm. There's this common theme that you often find of the servant who asked to, to, to work for a master who is really either another work from fairy mm. or a secret noble. Yeah. Or, and, and they have secret gifts that they want to give, but there's always a price as well. Exactly. But it comes right down to Puss in Boots. Yeah, yeah. You know, who turns up and says, if you give me a pair of boots... I will work for you. Yeah. And then does seemingly really strange things, but ends up uh, actually supporting and making his master something special. Yeah. You come across it in lots of stories. Yeah. The interesting thing is that the one person who isn't secretive is the Gilladaka. Yeah. He says precisely who he is, yeah. where he comes from, what he's going to do, and then he does it. Well, the king of Surika, just like uh, the Grugach and Gashgad with his blood feud, also has this imminent enemy who's about to attack. And here that enemy is termed the King of Greece. Now, is this one of those occasions where you get the influence of classical learning? It seems to me that the King of Greece's warriors are described as if they're Spartan warriors. Well, in many ways, the idea, if you like, of the Greeks is standing in for the idea of some great nation that could possibly conquer the world. That's what it looks like. Only what it's saying here, that the King of Greece hasn't heard of the Irish. Mm -hmm. But of course, once he has, his Spartan warriors are going, ah, the Irish are the most ferocious warriors there ever been. Look at us, they're far more scary than the Spartans. And what I feel about this is that, you know, it's like a reforming of the, if you like, traditional Irish material. But it is taking into account a broad classical learning of a sort of a, a secondary type, a sort of a hearsay type. You know, whereby the earlier stories, it was just about the guys in the next county. But now that we know there was this great force over somewhere to the east, um, we still have to be good enough to conquer them. Yeah, it's putting the Irish into the best stories. Exactly. Isn't it? Giving yeah. them their true place. They were only not there because they hadn't heard of them. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> The other thing is that the story seems to have suddenly completely changed. It's mm. gone way beyond the Pillar Island. Yeah. There's no suggestion as whether they're still on the Pillar Island or whether they're somewhere else entirely. Yeah. It sort of feels like a case of a secondary universe tucked into, what was it, four prefects' pockets? I, th I thought I would say four people boxes, but anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean. Hitchhiker reference. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, but it's also now a war film. It is. <laughs> well, either way... Our story isn't terribly concerned <laughs> with internal consistency. Uh, it not wants the, to get to the fighty not the bit. the highest priority. No, no, exactly. And so it gets straight to the fighty bit, that Fionn and his Fenians help the King of Soroka to fight the King of Greece and his forces, and they slaughter lots of them to the left and to the right, and they did not think of too many and what have you. Now, the embattled King of Greece wants revenge specifically on Fionn and his household, so he looks for a volunteer to go and, you know, defend his honour, essentially. Yeah. The volunteer is the son of the King of France. We've so, had Greece, now we've got France. Exactly, all these sort of semi-real places, you know. Um, well, that, yeah, it was a very real place. <laughs> well, 
to the people hearing this story, it was semi-real. It's exotic. Ex- it's it exotic. is, totally. Think Charlemagne. Exactly. Roland and Oliver and yeah. all these characters. So this son of the King of France, he volunteers to go and wreak revenge. Now, of the Fenians, Gull McMorna wants to have a go at meeting this son of the King of France, but Oscar kind of says to him, well, you're the best of our fighters, you always win, why can't I have a go this time? <laughs> and he does actually convince Gull to hold back at least for a while. And you've got this incredible description. Yeah. This is Oscar. Yeah. And the King of the Franks' son faced each other like two rabid dragons, like two far-reaching terrible lightning jets, or two surges of the most violent spring tide surmounting pinnacles of rock. Such might fitly be that pair of worthy champions' description. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then after that, it's no good. Gold goes on the rampage as yeah, well. Yeah. Which is equally over-described. <laughs> and finally, we end up with the gory scene of Gold and Oscar waving the head of the King of France's son at the Greek fleet and shouting at them. <laughs> da, 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 da. Pretty much, Not yeah. very sophisticated. No, but it, it does seem to be effective, at least. Well, once is never enough in this kind of story. And so the following day, even though the obviously the King of France's son has lost his head, there's another volunteer chosen and this time it's the king of Africa's son and on the Fenian side this time it's the sons of the king of India who who want to fight they are the boat builder and the tracker and they want to fight on Fionn's behalf so this this is the next scene where you've got two more heroes going to go to each other you know it reminds me of what I was thinking about um, Forbidden Kingdom where uh, you've got the monkey king fighting with the demon lord they're all paired off exactly and that's exactly what's happening here they shivered their thick shafted, crimson-headed and broad-socketed spears and all those good warriors with their hewing and sore vehemence cleft each other's shapely helmets. Well, in these stories, if at first you don't succeed and if at second you don't succeed, then you try for a third time. <laughs> Always three times. <laughs> yes. Three times is the charm. It certainly is. And this time, it's the King of Greece's own son who volunteers to go and get revenge on Finn the Fianna. But now we get to hear about the King of Greece's daughter. And she even has a name. Her name is Tasha Toivgel. The Toivgel is sort of bright or shining side or body. Um, and she is desperately in love with Finn, despite never having met the poor man. <laughs> and she's described like this. As the sea surpasses all torrents, the Shannon other rivers and the eagle all birds, in form and beauty and in aspect, she transcended the whole world's women. Yeah. Another one of those over-the-top descriptions. It is, but at least she gets to continue to have a part in this tale. Not like the poor girl who got the description earlier, who ends up as Miss Not Appearing in this film. (laughs) You have to wonder what happened to her. Well, Tasha asks her father for a strange boon. She asks whether she can watch her brother beating up Finn. Yes. Which is a bit odd, but Mm. anyway, he says, yes, of course you can, dear. Run along. (laughs) Now, this time, Finn knows, probably because it's the third time, that this is going to be this sort of group single combat fest. It's a boss fight, essentially, where everyone is going up against everybody. And here's Finn fighting the son of the King of Greece. Like two most mighty lions, or like a pair of venomous snakes, like two talon-wearing griffins, he and the Greek confronted each other so that the earth shook beneath their feet. Yes. 
and that's basically the end of the battle because he kills the son of the king of Greece. Yes. And after this great and monumental battle, it describes how an Oum stone with the names of all the fallen, so it must be quite a big stone, is raised up over the fallen, over the dead. And there's one final little comment. As Finn butchers the prince of Greece, and if Tasha fancied him before, she fancies him seven times as much while he's slaughtering her brother. <laughs> that has issues to me. <laughs> Strange tastes. Whatever floats your boat. And of course, she then sneaks off to Finn's tent. Oh, of course. And Finn is very happy about this. But Tasha's father is not. And to be a bit more serious, I think you've got, again, these folktale and myth motives mm. here. I mean, there are sort of hints of uh, Theseus um, stealing Ari- Ariadne. I mean, not to mention Dermot's elopement with Gronia. But there is one story which I think parallels better is um, Jason running away with Medea mm. because when they leave uh, Colchis, Medea takes her little brother with her and then she cuts him into pieces and chucks him into the sea just to slow down the pursuit of her father Aetes. Yeah. I do feel there might be a hint of that here. Shows knowledge of the classics again. Oh, it does at the very least, yeah. Well, the King of Greece isn't going to stand for this. He wants his daughter back. And it now tells us that one of his captains has a magical branch. Presumably an apple. You would imagine so. Which, what a surprise, can put people into a sound sleep. And so this captain sneaks into the enemy camp and shakes the branch, putting Finn and the King of Surika to sleep. And then he nabs Tasha and hot-foots it back to the King of Greece, who decides he's lost enough people already. He just cuts his losses and runs. <laughs> and poor Finn wakes up shaking and depressed, having lost this delicious girl. But the King of Circa speaks a poem yes. in which he says, Don't worry, it'll be all right. Chin up, Finn. <laughs> I find it interesting that in this poem, the King of Greece is actually termed Ord Regendalen. He's the High King of the World. Now, this is putting the Fenians in a very strong position. Yeah. It's Fenians versus the rest of the world, and they've just won. Of course. <laughs> we keep on finding this evidence of classical learning, and not as an elite thing, but as something that was general in the Irish population. A knowledge of the old stories, Absolutely. the old classical stories. Of the classical stories, but also of the, the language. Yeah. Because right down to pretty much modern times, we have examples where particularly Latin was very important to the teaching in the hedge schools. So it was being taught to ordinary people and yeah, right to up peasant to, groups. Exactly, like. right up to at least the yeah, 19th century. I find it curious, you know, um, the Romans of course never came to Ireland. No. And in England, when the Romans left, the Saxon way of life began to develop. Mm. Latin almost disappeared from England. Yeah. So that there's, uh, you know, it's a Saxon language. Mm. In es- well, there's a lot of Latin in, in it. Yeah. But that, a lot of that came in through the Normans. Exactly. And Latin almost disappeared except in scholarly terms, yeah. in the monasteries. Yeah, it yeah. was very strong in the monasteries, but it never really came down into the ordinary people. Mm. It seems to have been very different in Ireland. I think so. And I think that it, it was this effect of trickling down because post um, the flight of the earls, there was no longer really much of an aristocracy to have elite learning. So learning kind of devolved, if you like, out into the more general population. And there's plenty of anecdotal 
evidence for this lasting right up until recent times. Funny enough, most interesting is probably Brian Friel's play Translations. Yeah. I was uh, listening to this on the radio not long ago. I mean, if you don't know it, it tells the story of a group of soldiers who are mapping the west of Ireland. These British soldiers, British soldiers, yeah. sorry, I should have said that. British soldiers in the west of Ireland, who of course are not popular, mm. and take a hind-handed approach as being superior to the Irish peasants. Naturally. But uh, the peasants, although, shall we say, the ordinary people, I'd say the British yeah. see them as peasants, yeah. um, try and talk to the soldiers, but they have no English. Yeah. So they think the best way to communicate with these foreigners would be in Latin. Yeah. Well, after all, everyone understands Latin. It's the lingua but franca. Course, the soldiers haven't a clue what they're talking yeah. about. Yeah. There's a lot more to the story, there but that's is. in essence what it is. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's a very similar uh, incident in the adventures of Francisco. Francisco de Cuellar, who was a survivor of the Spanish Armada. The play by Donald O'Kelly is called The Adventures of the West Senor, uh, which was also then made into a radio play called Francisco, which won the Prix Europa in Berlin. It's well worth going and looking up. But there's a particular incident, and I remember hearing about this long ago, where this Spanish shipwrecked sailor uh, is looking for shelter for the night in the wilds of Sligo and he finds this uh, solitary old man uh, living in a cabin in the wilds and they manage to communicate to each other because they both have Latin. Mm. So that's mm. now that's early 17th century, you know, but like I say, it goes up until penal law times, which were only repealed in the mid 19th century. So it's interesting, there's certainly, if there's a, a, a knowledge of some Latin yeah. among ordinary people mm. and they're being taught it by their head school teachers yeah. and local educated people. Yeah. They're also going to have a better idea of uh, some of the stories. Exactly. And yeah. may have a better idea in the 18th century of um, Theseus yes. or Jason who yeah. would have been known in England yeah. right, among ordinary people. Yeah. I'm not sure about that but certainly the knowledge of Latin is interesting. Yes. So to get back to our lost Greek girl the King of Sorica does promise to Finn that they will go and get that's back. the chin up bit. That's chin up, exactly. Uh, but before they do anything, they have a little day to recover. And after this rest day, they're just about getting themselves together to head off to Greece when suddenly yeah, they, they see... Yeah. Gaudy ornamented banners, standards of soft silk, well-tempered battle swords carried at warriors and champion shoulders, dense great groves of lengthy spears, tall and tough. And in that company, right at the front, Diermut of the Glittering Teeth. <laughs> I had to put that in oh, just yeah. for the glittering teeth. I know, he must bring a toothbrush with him everywhere. He sounds like a toothpaste advert. Can <laughs> you imagine all these warriors? Yeah. And in the front, somebody, you know, there's a little Ding. star. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Now it's time for more exposition. Dermot introduces his new best mate, the Grogach and Gashkit, and explains that this Grogach, by means of magic, has discovered that it was Avertak MacAlchad who kidnapped Finn's men. In other words, he's the Giladacher. He is the Giladacher. His name we now have. It's Avertak MacAlchad. And that this Avertak has taken these Fenians off to Tirtangra, the land, land of, of promise. promise. Yes. Now, Finn, on light of this information, makes what I think are a couple of surprising decisions. He decides that Gull, Oscar, and Fergus Fairley should go off to Greece to go and rescue Tasha while Finn himself ignoring the girl yeah who's just been crying over I know will just take the rest of them and 
head straight to Tir Tarangra, to the Land of Promise, and whoever gets to the Land of Promise first should just wait for the others to catch up. At this point, the storyteller either runs out of time or runs out of steam. Yeah. <laughs> because you just get the next bit. Finn gets a big boat and they go straight to the Land of Promise. Yeah. That's all it says. In fact, even more so, it says um, nothing further is known of their journey. Yeah. So there's not a sheep, a bird or a sea monster inside. <laughs> and as soon as they get there, Avatar is waiting for them and Finn sends a message saying, now, would you rather, should we have a fight or are you just going to return my men? <laughs> And Avatar, surprisingly, goes, nah, don't feel like a fight. Yeah. <laughs> you can have your men back. Yeah. And so they have a feast and settle down to discuss reparations. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much all there is for now. Well, before we find out what happens to the others on their particular quest, uh, I think it's worth just pausing to take a look at the name that we now have for the Gila Decker, <laughs> this Avertuk Makalchid. Now, the Avertuk is simple enough. Abert is like a, a speech or something that is said. In modern mm-hmm. Irish, it's a sentence. Um, the Alchid is a little trickier. It could be mean a big battle like old Kath or it could mean something that's rocky like Alech. It might even, although it's a bit of a stretch, mean someone who makes others pregnant. <laughs> so you got a speechy son of big battle. Yes, well I mean big battle, that does describe the Gila Decker quite well, doesn't it? Mm. And the island that they've reached is a, a rocky promontory, you know, so that could that could fit. Yeah, though, though that's not where the Gila Decker is, he's in no. the land of promise. Yeah. I know it's much more speculative, but I just had a thought. Could this be a sort of spoof memory of Mongon? What, you mean a gobby son of the great (laughs) impregnator? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, you know, the impregnator. It's very much, there was Mananan calling Bran in our first ever Imrol film we did, and there he is calling people to witness, I am just about to go and impregnate someone. (laughs) I mean, that's what he calls them to do. I know. And yeah. what's more, that the, my son is going to be one who, by his words, who by his poetry, yeah. brings the worlds together. Yeah. In other words, the gobby son of the impregnator. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just a thought. Yeah, yeah. It's like work. a parody of this important story. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I don't know. It just. <laughs> now, the others, Gull and Oscar and Fergus Fairlips, are setting off on yet another Imrov. But this one has a more familiar flavour to it, I would say. The translations are a little over the top here, but it goes something like this. They turn their backs to the land and set their faces to the sea, to the green, chequered ocean's borders, to the angry and frowning cold, wet waters, with strenuous labouring and with swift running, holding their course until they listen to the utterance of sea hogs, of mermaids, of wondrous monsters of the abyss and finally come into port on the coasts of fair and lovely Greece I mean picturesque as it is yes um O'Grady's translation can be a bit of a mouthful. Well, it can, but it can also be um, somewhat unhelpful. I mean, for example, there's an earlier bit, where I think when he's describing the Gila Decker and saying the weaponry that he has at his back, but O'Grady says, dorsal superficies. <laughs> he just can't bring him to, himself to say on his back. I mean, why use one perfectly comprehensible word when ten archaic ones will do? Yeah, it makes it very difficult. It really and occasionally does. it would help if he put in a few sentences. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're 
back, if you like, on firm Imrov territory here, which is never all that firm, when they arrive in Greece, who do they meet and admire but the cows? They meet the cattle <laughs> and they ask the herdsmen what land they're in. And those herdsmen are quite astonished at the ignorance of these travellers. <laughs> and they tell them, well, you're in Athens, which is in Greece. Yes, <laughs> the text says that several times. Athens, which is in Greece, by the way. But the king is out. Yes. In fact, everyone, except the women, of course, are out hunting. In fact, the whole of Athens is out. (laughs) Now, at this point, Oscar asks Gull what the plan is. What are they going to do? And Gull's suggestion is that they just storm into the palace and take the girl and run away again. But Fergus Fairlip says, hang on a minute, let's be a little bit canny about this. And what he says is that they should disguise themselves as poets, including plaiting their hair for ply. Well, hang on. This is exactly what the children of Turin do. Yeah. Right down to the hair. Yeah. And what's more, Gull gives exactly the same response as one of Brian's younger brothers. Uh, he says, what happens if someone asks us for a poem? Fergus <laughs> replies, just leave the talking to me. Yeah. Exactly like Brian did. Yeah, exactly. So maybe poets, this foreply was how you recognise a poet. Yeah. This episode is so like the children of Turin. And we've got just more intertextual borrowing or just familiarity between all these stories. Yeah, well, it's also kind of the old story of the Irish abroad. It is rather. Do you remember that advert? I think it was only shown in Ireland, but it was advertising a beer or something. But it had, um, oh, you know, Corkamillish. Oh, yes, yes. This was sort of the the plot of the ad, if you like, is some Irish lads are abroad and they're in a bar and they say, oh, where are you from? Oh, we're from Ireland. Oh, give us some Irish dancing. Do something Irish. Or a song. Yeah, so then they go, oh, well, this is a poem. In our native tongue. Yes, and what it turns out to be is Will Cadigum Dulgaji and Lepros. And anyone in school knows that. Please may I go to the toilet? Exactly. And then he says uh, Toganzi Urum, which means I'm wearing a jumper. <laughs> uh, and Sharon Nivioloin, who is a newsreader. Um, and of course it has this refrain of Ismahlam Cork and Millish. And everybody in this romantic, it's all done in a very romantic yeah. style and everyone sighs and goes Cork and Millish. Which Ismahlam Cork and Millish is I like cake. <laughs> So, yeah, I can't help thinking that's a representation of either Brian and his brothers or here, Fergus Gull and Oscar. Look, it's on YouTube, so we'll put up the link. link. Now you know what it's about. It's worth it. It's just hilarious. It is brilliant. Well, back to the story. Yes. So, after getting their hair done, um, the three lads go off and knock on the city gates. Now, it says they knock on the gates with a staff, but we've met several times before this device of the poet's staff, which seems to mean that you are then recognised as a poet. I think it's implied that that's what I it is. I think so, yeah. And uh, as we discussed before, that's like a, the passport that poets can use for well, going from one kingdom to with another. much in common with the apple branch. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But what they find is that Athens is actually out. (laughs) And no one can get to see Tasha until the king returns. So they just wait. So later that evening, when the king and the rest of Athens finally get back... Having had a tiring... But very successful hunt. Um, But the tiring bit is important because it means that they're nearly ready for bed. Now, Tasha recognises these newcomers, these so-called poets, but she doesn't say anything. Keeps it to herself. She does. Keeps her own counsel. And since it's just about bedtime, she asks for these unknown poets to come and read her a bedtime story (laughs) in In private. private. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, that really reminds me of Dovlaka wanting a private confession with the newcomers. Oh, yeah. And we all know what happened then. I know, exactly. So these burly warriors um, with their hairdos <laughs> file into Tasha's bedroom. <laughs> Where it says they disclose themselves to each other. <laughs> you make what you want of that. Exactly, yeah. Now, uh, Tasha tells Fergus of Fairlips that the same thing will happen tomorrow, that the king will be off hunting with the rest of Athens and that she'll use the opportunity uh, to sneak off to the boat with Gull and Oscar and they can all escape. Yeah, quickly. and after that the story goes, so that's what they did. Yep. <laughs> and then they left and they landed back in the land of promise. Yes, with no with further, no further adventures. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It sounds like the storyteller has either run out of steam or maybe the episode overran. It's quite possible, yes. <laughs> <laughs> when Finn from Tirtangra, from the land of promise, sees this ship approaching, he recognises the five people on board. There's Gull and Oscar and Fergus Fairlips and Tasha and, Tasha and her handmaid. So they all finally get back together again. There are so many hints of of Lacker and the Sons of Turin here. Yeah. I was thinking, we don't want to give the impression that these are derivative stories. Mm. It's not that. They're all of a similar age and style. They are, and it's part of what we've been terming the Levergavola strand, simply because what that represents is this kind of synthetic uh, meshing of the traditional Irish stuff with the classical and with the biblical learning, that it's a reforging of a lot of very well-known stories and story types and characters in a wider context of European learning. Mm. I know this story is not concerned with internal consistency. Not particularly. You can't really say that. Uh, but here you have Finn coming and going from the land of promise without any difficulties. Mm. You know, there's no time dilation here. No. And yet when um, Ushin goes to Tin and mm. he's kind of stuck. And yeah. when he comes back, it's 300 years later. We're dealing with two completely different types of stories yeah. with, the, with the same characters. Yeah, and um, I think there's... This points towards some of the work that we've set out for ourselves, which is to try and identify these different strands within storytelling. And we've just said that this story of Athenian Emrov is part of a Levergavola strand, mm-hmm. whereas I feel like that Oshin to Tirnan Og strand is what I think we've previously called Baptism, Baptism and Death, death. Yes. Which, which is slightly different. And this is why those uh, the traditional terms of saying this is the Athenian cycle aren't so helpful because yeah. the stories are quite different. Whereas with this one, you're concerned with showing how Irish are as good as the rest of the world, yeah. only a bit better. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we can beat the rest of the world, whether they're Spartan warriors or whether they're other world uh, heroes. Yes, yeah. But in that other strand, you've got that post-Norman law problem. Exactly. You yeah. can't go to the other world and then come back again. Mm, mm. And I think it's to do with law rather than to do with Christianity. Yeah, it's, yeah. Or at least not just a Christian. Yeah. You're getting out of your place. We mm. can't have these people who have this way through to a place where there's a different law, yeah. where there's no uh, original sin. Exactly, All yeah. those things would kind of muck up our world. So exactly. we have to make sure that they come back, get baptised, and then die. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is why I'm not so fond of the uh, colloquies of the ancients. Yes, yeah. But this is part of what we've set ourselves to do. We don't have an a-, a complete answer to it yet. But it is definitely something worth pointing out. <laughs> Why the Fenioct is always, you take one look at it and go, no! <laughs> and why it won't be our next series. Exactly, Sorry. yeah. <laughs> well, at least we've got our stories linked up again. Yes. <laughs> You've got the Gilladacker and his horse, mm-hmm. Dearman's Imrov, yeah. 
Finn's philandering, <laughs> of course, and then gone on Oscars in Rough to Greece. Now all we're left with is the fact that Avatar wants to know what sort of reparation they feel is necessary for his original abduction prank. Yes. <laughs> well, at this point, Finn reckons he's got his girl, he's got his men back, he's kind of in a good mood, feeling a bit mellow, so he reckons the accounts are all balanced, and in fact he's not owed anything by the Gilladecker. Now, it's interesting that Avatar is um, not so sure. You see, he's concerned about Conan Whale, he's concerned about that sharp-tongued satirist. Yes. And he wants to make absolutely sure that Conan's happy and that he's not going to be bad-mouthed. Yeah, and indeed, Conan does seek a real reparation and something that is directly equivalent to what was done to them. Not just financial. No, certainly not. What he wants are 14 of the best women of the Land of Promise, of Tyr and Tarangra, and what's more, Avertuk's own wife making 15, which is equal to the number of the Fianna who were taken. And Conan wants them all to ride on his own back, back to <laughs> Ireland, and with the Avertuk's wife hanging on behind in the way that Leogon Lewis did with the horse's tail. How are they going to manage that? I, well, the hanging on behind, I don't like to think about in too great detail, I have to say. <laughs> We'll leave it to your imagination. Exactly. This is Avertok agrees to, of course. It's sort of really um, reparation in kind. Exactly. Well, that the idea of reparation is that, you know, you get an, something of equal value. And so that's, that's a weird one, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> And then uh, Avatar gives Finn his men back and then promptly vanishes in true Mithero Mananano Kuroi style. Yes, that he does. And that's nearly it. It just says then that Finn brings Tasha back with him to Alvin, to the Hill of Allen, although there's no details whatsoever about how they did that. He just gets there. And then they have a great big feast again. And that's the end of the story. The end. Finish. It's been abrupt, but then so are a lot of movies. Yeah. Now, this is what we now have come to realise is typical Conan Whale. It's this threat of satire that mm. he can use in order to get things done. Um, it's very much like Brick Crew was in Brick Crew's Feast. Do you remember the house of the Quicken Trees? Exactly. Another Fenian one where in that, Dermot and Fionn were both very frightened of the potential of Conan yeah. making a satire he on He was them. getting Dermot to do exactly what he wanted. Yeah. One more thing. What do you think happens to the women? Does Connor get to keep them? Or do they go back home afterwards? Well, this story doesn't tell us that. And it may be the sequel just never got made, so we never find out. <laughs> so I suppose there's a question we should finally ask. Is this, in fact, an Imrov? Well, it certainly reads like a spoof, Imrov. I mean, after all, right at the beginning, you've got this carnivorous horse. And well done, he'd encountered several monstrous horses, although they didn't then take the place of the boat, as it does <laughs> in this one. You've also got, as we've said before, we've got the island of the pillar, mm. which is definitely a very recognisable island of uh, other Imrov. It certainly is, yeah. And then there's that whole theme, which we looked at quite a lot in Wildoon, about finding the other world wife and getting the woman. Although Wildoon, once he's got her, once he's got the queen of the island of women, he does his best to try and ditch her and run away. Yeah, we did say that that, that showed classical influences as well. Yes, yes, we felt that. But 
in this one, Fionn does everything he can in order to try and keep her or to get her back even. Mm -hmm. And then when they arrive in Greece, it's described very much like uh, the islands of sheep and cattle. Yes. The admirable sheep and cattle, though I think it's just that they think the cattle are good. I know, they always like looking at cows, don't they? I also found that that whole story of Dermot and the well was so redolent of both those Christian in Rava, uh, where they had those prohibitions on drinking water from the well without getting permission from someone who guards the island. A hairy hermit. There we have our Groga, <laughs> our hairy hermit, exactly. There are probably other similarities, but um, maybe we and you should go and have a check on the tabulated in Rama. One of the most important things, though, that points us toward this sort of spoofish or satirical element is that this in Rava is not started either by another world woman or by a Christian god but by a grumpy servant and his carnivorous horse. Yes. And it's just hilarious rollicking adventure really with yes. a little bit of thrown in gore. Of course. Do you think that Giladaka himself is actually a spoof on Malanan? He certainly has an awful lot in common with the story that we looked at of the Cairnacoil Riva. Including the name. Absolutely. It's in that story. The Cairnac at one point gives his name as Giladaka. But when we went through that story, we did feel, like with so many, that it was really about Mither rather than Mananon. But then again, by the time we get to these later tales... And this is definitely a later story. This is absolutely one of the later stories, early modern Irish. We felt that Mither had already been long lost, and it was widely assumed that these roles were taken by Mananon. So it's sort of much of a muchness, really. And in the end, I think the... One thing I would like to say is that uh, whoever said storytellers didn't have a sense of humour. <laughs> I mean, spoof and satire is obviously as popular then as it is now. And that, boys and girls, concludes <laughs> our great Imrov exploring the Imrova. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've been rowing around for well over a year. That we have. And it's taken us a good while, but there have been some diversions and interruptions along the way. Yeah, travelled, family issues, once one or the other of us keeps being away. Mm. And, of course, the omnipresent ogre of technical problems. Oh, yes, those sharks. But it has allowed us to explore the Irish mythology in a broader context. Yeah. You know, really just travelling where the stories have taken us. Exactly. And, I mean, that's allowed us to track certain themes as they change over time and in setting, which has yeah. been really interesting. Like the other world, really looking at the yeah. Irish other world, particularly in contrast, shall we say, with the classical underworld. Yeah. And its origins and development. Exactly. And this is, as far as I'm concerned, still ongoing work. Oh, certainly. I mean, the first part of just tracking down the classical underworld has already taken me right across the world itself. Exactly. You know, as far as Greece and eastern Turkey and all sorts of other places to sort of see for myself. Mm. We also, of course, found ourselves able to reinstate the great poet King Mungon. Somebody I don't think many people have even heard of. No. He's been completely forgotten. Absolutely. And even we haven't particularly taken notice of him, but we now feel as though he's a great lost hero. And a source of an awful lot of other material. I mean, even finding the death tale of yes. Arthur embedded in the story know, of Mongol. I know, I know. So yes, excuse us if we go on about it, but I think that we really have found a lost crucial character and particularly to the poets and the learned people he was almost the patron of the poet he is the Irish Taliesin absolutely or we're going to now say that yeah. Taliesin is, is the, the Welsh, Welsh Mongol <laughs> sorry but that's how you know it was that exciting exactly for us. yeah and another thing that's come up for me this year is the restitution of Mither oh yes I've always been so concerned that his stories seem to be lost mm. and that what happens to him why does he have this one story when he's obviously such an important character exactly yeah 
Yeah. And now, look, we've found that, that basically so many of his stories, in fact, have seemed to have been given to Mananan. Yeah. Um, Not to put down Mananan. No, but it, it certainly is a very interesting change to have mapped and to see that where, at first, it started off just as a feeling that, you know, well, Mither seems to be so important. Where then are his stories? And the shock almost of realising that there was this deliberate change taking place, which then became de facto. And it seems to be clearly connected with the fact that Mither cannot survive as the judge under a Norman regime. Exactly, yeah. And that that was really the big sea change in Irish culture. Because when Christianity came to Ireland, it was fully incorporated. It was integral. And Encompass. Yeah. yeah. And that a lot of the culture just continued along the same lines, only richer. Whereas once Norman law came in, suddenly changes really had to be made. And it was quite severe and quite abrupt. So this has been a big part of our discoveries on this in Rob. I think so, yeah. I think this has been really central. At the same time as seeing that it was the Norman influence that really had such a big impact on Irish culture, as we find it through the literature, there are instances, though, of some of the more extreme Christian ideologies, particularly with the Kayla Day obsessions, all that stuff about the law of Sunday, and how, you know, it was a more important sin to ride a horse on a Sunday than stealing it from your brother. Um, And that awful, awful impact of the kind of Augustinian theology or dogma on what is otherwise quality Irish storytelling. But then right from the start we found that this is really what the Imrov as a type is all about. It is transitional as a form. In its very nature. It, yeah, exactly. It is all about a transition between worlds, but also a synthesis between those worlds. And that can be from the non-Christian to the Christian world, how you get from one to the other and how they can sit alongside each other. Creative belief systems. Exactly. All those things, beliefs, but also story forms and story characters because it synthesises classical and biblical learning with the traditional learning. So it's all about journeying from A to B and what you meet along the way and carry with you. It's very rich. It really is. It's given us so much, and I, I really hope it's given you so much as well. And it's also started a whole load of new threads as well. It really has, yeah. Many of which we are dreading trying to bring together. <laughs> uh, but not the next series. <laughs> What's coming next is that we are actually going to revisit our first island, if you like. It was our first series about mythical women. Yeah, um, we wanted to take another look at it because yeah. there are still new information coming up. It's exactly. now over three years ago yeah. since we did that yeah. and there's still more we want to say on Shinnan yeah. and Aravid and Maka and all these people yeah. and in a way revisit them so what we are going to do is we will in effect be rebroadcasting or re-podcasting those original episodes but with some comments some updating, some interlinking with the work that we've done since. And some new articles. Exactly. Some of the old articles will be reposted, but also with new information. So we're bringing our first series right up to date. And then we'll go on to the whole area of the toy. Yes, or we'll be certainly circling it very rarely. Spiralling it. We want to spiral the toy. Yeah. (laughs) So it won't be too long till our next episode. We're sorry about the gaps after this one, but... um, That's the nature of the Imran. It is, rather. Yeah. We're putting up our oars now. Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagas. 
Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.